0: Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the book of Exodus. We're reading from Exodus chapter 16 this morning, verses 1 to 21, and then verses 31 down to verse 36. So, most of the chapter, but not all of it. Uh, You'll find uh, our reading this morning on pages 58 and 59 of the Pew Bibles. Pages 58 and 59. Uh, This is the really famous story of the Israelites receiving bread or manna from heaven. So we're reading Exodus 16, verses 1 to 21, and then we're jumping over to 31 and reading down to verse 36. And as we read, we remember that this is God's word to us. Exodus 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Said to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as, as he can eat. You shall take each, each an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it it, it it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till, till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some, some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. Then down to verse 31, over on page 59, it says Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the 10th part of an ephah. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 16. Uh, you'll find it on pages 58 and 59 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning that passage up, uh, let's pray briefly for a moment together. Father, we thank you so much for your word your word which guides us and directs us in this world. And we pray that in these moments that as we look at it together, you would guide and direct our hearts. We pray that you would guide us and direct us to see Jesus clearly and to realize that everything we ever need can be found in him. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. It's difficult being a visitor to a foreign country. Many of us will have had the experience of going to a different country and feeling slightly displaced because we don't know the language, the geography, or the customs of the country that we're visiting. It's difficult being a visitor to a foreign country. Some of us have made some pretty silly mistakes while being in different countries, including me. I tried to check if I've told you this story before but I don't think I've ever shared it in church but I've probably told some of you it in person. Uh, Back in 2013 I was in Israel uh, with Union College and other students uh, and we toured the country and saw lots of historical sites and interesting places but one memory stands out from my time in Israel. I'd done the thing that everybody does in that I had packed some supplies. You know the holiday supplies, you go to the shop, you buy the supplies that you need to to to, to keep you on your holidays? Well, I brought some treats from home, some things to nibble on. And on one particular day day, at one particular site, I decided to share my bag of supplies, one of my bag of supplies with others in our group. Well, what what I had was a bag of Percy pigs. Now you'll know what I'm talking about, all right? (laughs) You'll know what I'm talking about. The M&S sweets, everybody loves Percy pigs. So there I am in Israel, the country where they don't eat pork, with my Percy pigs. And I'm handing them out, passing them around. Would you like a Percy pig? Everybody loves Percy pigs, go on. You really want to have a Percy pig? I'm going down the line, and the number of sweets in the bag is gradually reducing, and then I come to our Jewish tour guide, Ofer. And I say to Ofer, Ofer, would you like a sweet? And then there's this awkward pause, and I'm holding the bag, and he's looking at me, and there's this silence, silence which ends by him saying, well, what are they? And I enthusiastically say, Percy Pigs, they're, they're sweets, they're Percy Pigs. And, and then it clicks, and I just want the ground to swallow me up. And all the fellas in my year group on the trip are standing, dying with silent laughter at the pickle that I've got myself into. After a fairly fraught and awkward conversation, Ofer didn't take a Percy pig. Weirdly enough, he didn't take a Percy pig, and I didn't live it down throughout the rest of the trip. But it's difficult being a visitor to a foreign country, isn't it? We can get ourselves into pickles. We can get ourselves into trouble. It's hard when we don't know the language, geography and customs of a country that we're visiting. In a sense, that that picture of being in a different country is helpful for us as we think about being Christians. As Christians, this world is not our home. We're living in a foreign land waiting to go home. And it's hard for us as we live in this world because the standards for us are different when compared with the standards of the world. There are times when we find that difficult. There are times when we live more like the world than we should. There are times when it looks like we're part of this world, not just the visitors that God has called us to be. And there are times when we outrightly question whether God's way is right for us. It's easy to think of examples of us saying something to that effect. God, why is it that I have to go through this whenever that person has an easy life? They're not as faithful as I am. God, why can't I be as successful as that person? They don't go to church. They don't believe in you. The, the, the root of our problem is that we don't believe that God will give us what we need. But our passage this morning shows us the opposite. The big point of this passage is that God provides for his people and gives us what we really need. God doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need. You, you can understand stories, Old Testament stories like this in three different ways, on three different levels. You can understand the story as a personal history of the main character involved. You can understand it as a national history of the people of Israel. Or you can understand it as part of God's big story of salvation. Moses, the author of Exodus, isn't really interested in retelling his personal experience. He does include himself in the chapter, but it's not the main point. He's more interested in telling it from the second level, as part of the national history of Israel. The people of Israel have got out of Egypt... They had been there for 430 years, but they had finally got out. God had brought them out. And he'd also brought them over the Red Sea, and it had been amazing. The Egyptians had been wiped out quite literally as the Red Sea collapsed on top of them. But it's a month and a half later, and Israel are in the Sinai Peninsula, the desert, the wilderness. They're on a journey of a lifetime, an adventure with God, What they're going to experience will be stamped on the minds of all future generations of Israel and also future generations of Christians. They're a month and a half in, but the novelty is wearing off. They've stopped admiring the scenery, which wasn't much to begin with. And now they're asking and saying, why are we here? What are we doing? This is madness. Look at Exodus 16 verses 2 and 3. It says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's understandable. Or or is it, had the people forgotten so quickly? One of the fascinating things about Exodus is that it's a model of what it means to be a Christian. So as we read the story of Exodus, we're supposed to understand what it means to be a Christian. So crossing the Red Sea, that's a a picture of conversion. Our past is put behind us. We're citizens of a new kingdom. But that becomes uncomfortable, especially when you're a little way in. You can become selective with your memories. Isn't it funny how we remember all the difficulties we face more quickly than we do the deliverances. That's one of the problems of being a pilgrim in a foreign land. We forget. Sometimes we choose to forget. And that's what Israel does in this chapter. They forget and they grumble. And as we saw last time, grumbling is a big problem. But in this chapter, we see very clearly the Lord's antidote to grumbling. And it's himself. The antidote, the cure for grumbling, is God himself. Exodus 16 tells us, that God provides for his people and gives us what we really need. That's the main point of this story. And it's the point we're going to try and highlight as we look at this chapter together. Most weeks we have a few points, two, three, or even sometimes four. This week we have one. Just like we had one thing to talk about the boys and girls with. The one thing is that God provides for his people and gives us what we really need. Let's work through this story and see where this main point comes from. As we've already seen, Israel whine in verses 2 and 3. They're in the wilderness, they they don't have the food they want, and they whine. It was their besetting sin. Now that's an old word, but simply put, a besetting sin is one that you commit over and over and over and over again. You do it without thinking, you do it when you're an autopilot. Israel's whining started when Moses first went to Pharaoh and the Israelites complained that he was making their job harder instead of easier. They grumbled when they were at the Red Sea, when they accused Moses of bringing them into the desert to die, and they were bitter at Marah and Meribah. By the time we get to verse 2, the whole group is a group of moaners. In verse 3, they complain about their meal plan, but the roots of the complaint seem to be a grumbling spirit. Our complaints aren't caused by our outward circumstances, you see. Instead, they reveal the inward condition of our hearts. The Israelites had nothing to complain about. What's interesting about their complaint is that they don't say, we're running out of food, because they weren't. In chapter 17, they ask for water for their livestock. They had flocks and herds uh, that they had brought out of Egypt with them. They could drink milk and make cheese, and they could, even make, they could even eat meat if they really wanted to. So they're not starving. And this is confirmed by Psalm 78, which speaks of Israel demanding the food they craved. Do you see the difference there? In verses 2 and 3, Israel are whining for the tastier food they enjoyed in Egypt, not the actual food they need for survival. They had confused what they wanted with what they needed. And that's often the source of our discontent, thinking that our greeds are really our needs or even our entitlements. But we need to remember that God provides for his people and gives us what we really need. God doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need. The the Israelites complained that their situation was worse than it actually was too. They they did something complainers often do. They exaggerated the advantages of their former situation. Remember the good old days. Remember how stuffed we used to get. They, they looked back with longing on their time in Egypt when they filled their plates at Pharaoh's buffet. At least that's how they remembered it. In truth, Pharaoh didn't do buffets. And if he did, he probably made them work for it. The Israelites longed to go back, proving once again how much easier it was to get them out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of them. There's another picture of the Christian life. God has fully and finally dealt with our sin. It is nailed to the cross. But on the other side, it's hard to get sin out of us. In fact, we won't be completely free from it until we meet God in glory. The Israelites are whining and we shouldn't be too hard on them because in their situation, what would we have done? Well, what do we do when we find ourselves in a situation that's similar? Uh, amazingly, though, God listens to the Israelites and gives them what they ask for. Four times in Exodus 16, it says that God heard their grumbling, verses 7, 8, 9, and 12. God not, not only heard them, but he also provided for them. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel Said to them at twilight, You shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The God of all grace was promising to provide for his people, and his provision would be abundant. In verse 4, God tells Moses that he's about to rain down bread from heaven. In verse 12, he promised that his people would be filled with bread. God promised to feed his people until they were satisfied, that this was only by his infinite patience. Because after all their grumbling and whining and moaning, it was much more than Israel deserved. God makes good on his promise in verses 13 to 15. What happens is a genuine miracle, maybe two genuine miracles. The first was the miracle of the quail, which is a small game bird that's common in the Middle East. Quail are migratory. Each year they pass over Sinai in the spring and autumn, flying low and they're carried along by the wind. When they stop, they roost on the ground. The Egyptians trap the birds in nets, but when quail are exhausted from their travels, they can be captured by hand. It's not surprising that Israel found quail in the wilderness, but God's provision was miraculous. The birds came that very evening, just at the right time, just at the time God had promised. And they also came in astonishing numbers to feed a multitude of millions. According to Psalm 78, he, God, rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. That tells you the extent of the miracle. The quail came to the right place at the right time and in the right quantity. Now, God didn't give his people quail every day. The miracle is repeated only once in the book of Numbers. What God did provide every day, though, was manna. 1631 tells us that manna was like coriander seed, white, And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. There are lots of theories as to what the modern equivalent might be to what it might have looked like. But Moses puts it well in verse 15. It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The psalmist spoke spoke of it as the bread of the angels and the grain of heaven. Manna was the original wonder bread and the Israelites got it every day in the wilderness for 40 years. In the story, God provides for his people and he gives them what they really need. They didn't need fine dining. They didn't need steak and chips every night. They didn't need five-star Michelin food and service. God knew and gave them exactly what they needed. There are other things that we could tease out of this story, out of this chapter, but the main point is just too important to miss. God provides for his people and gives us what we really need. Now, how does that connect with us? This is from a long time ago, a long, long time ago. Well, what relevance does it have to us? Well, the manna had educational purposes. It taught Moses and the people to depend on God for everything, for all their needs. Later, Moses explained that although manna was, was a physical miracle, its purpose was to teach a spiritual lesson. And that lesson was that God is the source of all our life. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. He said he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now Jesus used those words. He quoted them to Satan in the wilderness. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Like the Israelites, he was desperate for food, and so the devil tempted him to turn the stones into bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knew that our deepest needs are not physical, but are spiritual. What we really need is God, and when we have him, we have everything we need. Jesus said this while he was on earth. He spoke of himself as the spiritual bread from heaven that gives life to the world. John six thirty five. he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, he's saying, I am all you will ever need. I am the one who will meet your deepest spiritual needs forever. After Jesus said those words, the people around him grumbled and whined and moaned. They wanted God on their own terms and they weren't interested in what Jesus had to offer. They didn't understand that this was a matter of life and death, that the difference between heaven and hell is faith in the Son of God. So Jesus explained it to them. This is John six forty-seven to 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. from the temporal to the eternal, from the exodus to the cross. The manna in the wilderness was a type, a picture, an image, something from the Old Testament that points us to salvation in Christ. The manna taught Israel to depend on God for all their needs, but it had certain limitations. It was only bread, so it could only meet their physical needs, and only for a while, As Jesus points out as well, everyone who ate the manna is now dead. Nevertheless, the bread taught the people to look for God for their sustenance and salvation until he sent the true and living bread down from heaven. And that bread came in the person and work of Jesus. He offered his body on the cross to give life to the world. The meaning of the manna is that we all need Jesus. Through Jesus, God provides for his people and gives us what we really need. God doesn't always give us what we want. Life in this world is hard. Life as a pilgrim is hard. It's difficult being a visitor to a foreign country. But God always gives us what we need. He has provided for us from a spiritual perspective because he has saved us and redeemed us through the bread of life who was broken. And we're called to feed on him to rely on him, to look to him, to trust that he will give us what we really need. You're called to trust him for the first time if you've never done that before. If you're not trusting in Jesus, it's probably the case that you're living for something, that you're finding your satisfaction in something that will never really give give you what you want or what you truly need. Money, you'll die and you won't take it with you. Possessions, same as money. Land, same as money. Family, they're not perfect and you aren't either. And sometimes they'll disappoint you. Your career, you're going to have to retire someday. Well, whatever it is that you're living for that isn't Jesus will never truly satisfy. You. So, so this morning, if you're, if you're chasing after any of the things that I've mentioned or, or anything else, stop chasing after the wind and run to him. R- run to him for salvation. Because, because he is the only one. He is the only way. The only person who can deal with your spiritual problem. Your sin. He's the only one who can sort that. And what you'll find is that when you run to him. And when he sorts that problem out. He'll satisfy and complete you. In a way that nothing else can. Life won't be easy. And it won't be perfect. But he doesn't promise that it will be if you trust him. But, but he will give you what you really need. That's Exodus 16 then. Most weeks we have a few points, two, three, sometimes four. This week we've just got one. God provides for his people and gives us what we really need. Our closing hymn reminds us of that truth. It's the hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. It was written by William Williams. He was was a traveling Methodist preacher during during the time of the revival in Wales. He's been called the poet laureate of the Welsh revival. But what did he write in his hymn? We're going to sing it in a moment. He wrote, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more that that's what jesus will do if you trust him feed you be with you protect you love you until you want no more so if you haven't already will you come to him today god provides for his people and gives us what we really need let's pray together Father, we thank you for this simple, mean truth from this story, that you are the God who provides for your people. We thank you that we see that supremely through the cross, that Jesus has provided for all of our spiritual needs. He has, he has met the problem of our sin. And we pray that as those who have trusted in you, we might continue to find our satisfaction and rest in him. Help us to look to him and help us to trust that he will give us what we really need. Father, we pray for those who haven't yet trusted in the Savior. We pray that they might turn to Christ today, find that he is the Savior who can deal with the problem of their sin, but that he's also the Savior who is the bread of heaven and who satisfies fully and completely. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.